This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. With the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card, you'll earn unlimited 5% back at Walmart Online. You'll also earn 2% in Walmart stores, at restaurants, and on travel, and 1% everywhere else. When you want all that, you need the Capital One Walmart Rewards Card. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. It's a Tuesday morning in Brooklyn, and, well, it's a strange scene. Usually, this part of New York City is packed with busy office workers and pedestrians bumping into each other, rushing to their daily commutes. Today, the streets are nearly empty. And as the threat of the novel coronavirus pandemic continues, many people have stayed home. But not everyone. We wanted to know who was out in the street working when so many others had been asked by the government and even by their own employers to avoid being outside. Here's our producer, Joanne DeLuna, talking to a construction worker. He says the only directions he's gotten so far have been to show up to work. A woman collecting bottles on the sidewalk says she's leaving her fate in God's hands. And then there's a delivery man who says he's worried he could come into contact with the virus at any time. There's the flower vendor. He says he needs to keep going out. Because he can't make money by staying home. Those of us who can have probably been obsessively following the headlines about the virus. The Centers for Disease Control says the coronavirus could soon turn into a pandemic. A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China. Additional school districts shutting down today. Now 4.9 million schools. It is going to take drastic measures for us to get on top of it. But not everyone can afford to take the same measures. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, the risks immigrant communities face in a pandemic. Low-income immigrant communities may very well be facing the brunt of the coronavirus threat. They're often employed in labor, retail, and service industry jobs. Like the people we met in Brooklyn, many have to keep working to make ends meet, even as the number of people who are sick with COVID-19 rises exponentially. And this makes them very vulnerable. But when it comes to seeking health care, one policy measure put in place by the Trump administration is causing particular concern and confusion for immigrants across the country. It's called the public charge rule. The new regulation would dramatically expand the definition of public charge, a centuries-old term used to classify immigrants who depend on the government for support. Under this rule, if certain immigrants are applying for a green card or a visa, using federal benefit programs like food stamps and Medicare can jeopardize their chances of getting approved. Opponents argue that the rule could be scaring immigrants away from getting the health care they need, especially during this health crisis. 
to better understand the risks low-income immigrant communities face during this time and the challenges they have in seeking health care. We spoke to Catherine Kim. She's a policy and politics reporter for Vox.com. And just a quick note on the sound quality you're about to hear. Because of safety measures during this time, Catherine recorded herself from her home. She comes across loud and clear, but the interview was definitely not taped in a studio. And I'm recording from my home studio. So bear with us. Catherine Kim, welcome to Latino USA. Hi, thank you for having me. So I guess I just want to start out and ask you, why is it so important for you as a journalist in a moment of a pandemic like this, a worldwide crisis, that you want to write about low-income immigrant communities? I think it's ironic that we place low-income immigrants in these low-wage jobs because we think that they aren't as important. But during times like this, we realize that grocery store workers and retail workers are so crucial during pandemics and so crucial to our daily lives that they're the one part of society that we can't let go. Like, they can't go home. A lot of the discussions we were having were surrounded around the more privileged populations, I guess, people who could afford to social distance and people who could afford to kind of quarantine themselves and leave work, work from home. But the reality is that there are so many more people out there who just do not have that luxury. And I just did not think that there was enough coverage of that. So, um, Catherine, you cited the Economic Policy Institute, and in their research, they found that many retail and service industry jobs just don't provide support for sick employees. Only 27 percent of people making below the bottom 10 percent actually have paid sick leave. And that leaves out a lot of workers. So I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on the kinds of challenges that low income immigrants are facing when if they don't work, they don't get paid. I think that low-income immigrants are particularly vulnerable in situations like this because of the jobs that they are in. A lot of the low-paying retail service jobs do not provide sick paid leave and they do not have a lot of job stability. So they don't have the luxury to take time off if they feel sick. And in that case, they are forced to go out to work and they're forced to interact with a lot of people because of the nature of their job. So not only are they unable to take time off when they feel ill, but they're also exposed to high-risk environments where they are more likely to get coronavirus because the sheer amount of FaceTime that they have with clients are pretty high in the jobs that they have. So we mentioned this earlier. Um, There's this thing called the public charge rule. And this is something that the Trump administration enacted last month. So what are the origins of this public charge rule? And how do you think it might affect immigrants during the pandemic? So the rule was introduced earlier last year, went up to the Supreme Court, and then it was a narrow vote, five to four, and it was passed. So it went into effect February 24th. And so... To clarify, people with green cards will not be affected by the public charge rule. It's for people in the future who want to obtain a green card. For them, it will be harder to be naturalized. So main concern with this is that it would scare people away from seeking the necessary help they need. And it's concerning because we need to ensure that people get the proper health care that they need so that 
if they have coronavirus, it can be detected right away and isolated right away so that it's not spread within the community. Basically, we're touching on a lot of fear and disinformation when it comes to what immigrants, whether they have green cards or whether they're undocumented, can or can't do. And I'm wondering, in your reporting, this issue of misinformation and playing into fears of of immigrants or undocumented immigrants, what did you see and what concerns did this raise for you? I think the misinformation part is what concerns me the most. Communication from the government was so... It wasn't transparent. So that's the main concern to me that especially children are being impacted by this because the government has failed to communicate the public charge rule in an effective way with the people that will be most impacted by it. I was talking to the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project. It's based in Seattle. I was talking to the executive director and he was telling me he's been going around giving talks about the public charge rule making sure that people have the right information. And it was just as coronavirus was starting to pick up in the community. And a lot of parents had come up to him sharing their concerns. Children um, who receive Medicaid actually are not impacted by the public charge rule. But a lot of parents were actually afraid and did not have the accurate information. So they pulled their children out of Medicaid. And obviously that leaves these children in super vulnerable positions. Now, officially, the Trump administration is saying that any medical treatment related to the coronavirus will be exempt from the public charge rule. Details are up on the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services website. That's USCIS. But that's a big piece of news. And frankly, I haven't seen that anywhere else. Has there been an effort by the government to put this out there in a big way that says, if you want to get or need treatment for coronavirus, this won't count against you when you're applying for your visa or your green card. So yeah, that information hasn't really been circulated. And there's also a lot of concerns surrounding this specific exemption. I think a lot of experts still would prefer like a complete halt on the public charge rule for now as the coronavirus still remains within the country. Just because when there's An exemption, that means that people will still not get the necessary health treatment for other diseases that could later on impact their immune system and make them more vulnerable to coronavirus. In terms of your reporting, have you been able to tell if uninsured low-income immigrants um, have stopped seeking health care during this outbreak because of what they worry would be the residual impact on their cases? So that's one thing I was trying to find out too. I think the consensus is that it's too early to like have the numbers. But anecdotally, enrollment officers from places like the Universal Community Health Center in Los Angeles, which is which serves a majorly low income immigrant population. The enrollment officer there was telling me that he's seen a huge drop in people coming in asking about Medicaid. And so... I think once like about a year passes and we have the numbers, we'll definitely see a significant drop in people seeking government aid in healthcare. So what are some of the local efforts that you have seen that are being designed, if at all, to help these particular communities? Um, in your reporting, you found that some states and regional governments are actually, you know, trying to be very proactive in terms of curbing the spread of the virus and looking at these communities in particular. What's happening there? 
especially um, states that have a high immigrant population. So New York and California have definitely been trying to reduce the cost of testing, trying to ensure sick paid leave. I think Seattle is pretty good at working with um, immigrant organizations to ensure that the news is being passed on in their native language. News is changing so rapidly that like even reporters are having a hard time catching up with it. So I mean, imagine how much harder it must be for people who aren't constantly following the news 24-7. So there definitely has to be a more active effort, a joint effort between community organizations that have close ties with these communities and state governments and spreading the information. Coming up on Latino USA, the price of treatment for COVID-19 and what this means for the community clinics that serve as the only safety net for many low-income immigrants. Stay with us. No te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. The coronavirus pandemic is changing everything really fast. So we have created a podcast where you can hear conversations and stories from NPR journalists who are covering the pandemic, the public health fight against it, and how the world is coping. I'm your host, Kelly McEvers. Listen and subscribe to Coronavirus Daily from NPR. We're back, and we're going to continue our conversation now with Catherine Kim. She's a policy and politics reporter for Vox.com. We're talking about the health risks that many immigrants face as the coronavirus pandemic keeps on growing. Do we have any sense um, if, let's just say, this uh, migrant was able to get themselves tested and, you know, they turned out to be positive— I'm just thinking about the cost of treating. I mean, that's a lot of ifs, whether or not this, you know, undocumented immigrant might even show up at a clinic that was open that happened to have a test. But if all of that happened and they came up positive, what kind of a cost is there to their treatment? And is it even affordable? So there's still a lot of uncertainty around the actual price tag on coronavirus treatment, just because it seems like a lot of insurance companies haven't been able to settle upon a set price yet. Um, there's still so much that's unknown about the pricing for your treatment itself. Can you talk about the costs of the tests for clinics and or patients? What are we talking about in terms of costs? 
So uh, there's a lot of confusion surrounding testing and a lot is changing very rapidly. As of now, the kind of the status quo is that a lot of insurance companies have offered to waive testing fees like Aetna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and um, Medicaid also covers it as well. And even before then, states like California and New York had already waived fees um, for people with insurance. The problem is that a lot of immigrants are uninsured, especially now with a public charge rule. 23% of immigrants with legal status and 45% of undocumented immigrants do not have insurance. And that's like a huge gap in comparison to citizens, where only 8% do not have health care. And so when you do not have insurance, you have to pay at a significant amount of money. Even in California, where it's kind of estimated to be the lowest cost for uninsured people, you still have to pay like 100 to $200. Which for low-income people, that's foregoing two weeks worth of groceries. If community health centers have the test, technically they can give out those tests for free because, I mean, under law, they cannot turn anyone away, even if they do not have money. The problem is that they just do not have enough tests. What happens if these community clinics end up being closed down or being forced to shut down or not having enough uh, staffing to keep open? How are they run? How are they funded? And are they the first clinics that might go? It's a huge concern. Um, I had reached out to several community health centers all across the nation. And one common thread that everyone was mentioning was just kind of the lack of resources that they had, especially the lack of staffing. These nonprofit health centers are mainly funded by the government. But the reason, one of the reasons why they've been lacking in resources is because the House and the Senate failed to reauthorize the community health center fund, which basically provides more than 70% of the budget for these medical nonprofits. And so without this fund, they've really been struggling. Um, Congress is trying to help out a bit. So recently they passed an $8.3 billion bill, uh, kind of like an emergency coronavirus bill. And out of that, $100 million was dedicated to health centers that cater to underserved communities. As of now, that money hasn't reached health centers yet, and a lot of people do think that it won't be enough. I've been thinking a lot about privilege in this conversation and and in the whole pandemic. Um, you know, people with privilege have access to a lot of information and they can buy things, frankly. They won't lose their jobs if they miss a week of work. So I'm just thinking down the line in terms of you know, immigrants, low-income workers, the uninsured, communities of color that will likely be disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And what have you thought in terms of how people with privilege um, who want to do better, what we can do in terms of moving forward? Yeah, um, I've definitely been thinking a lot about my own privilege as well, I guess, while reporting on this, because I have the luxury of calling people from my own house working from home, reporting remotely, while the people I'm actually reporting on have to be serving in restaurants and grocery stores and a lot of these low-paying retail service jobs. A lot of organizations have started setting up funds to support low-income immigrants that have been impacted by COVID-19 because they've been laid off, because they can't get enough shifts. So donating to that is one way we can help. 
Also calling your local representative, asking them to repeal the public change rule. Also be nice to retail service workers. I know it's a stressful time, but I've been hearing so many horror stories. These people are working their best. They don't have the privilege to kind of take a day off, even if they feel sick. So just be nice to them. Thank you so much, Catherine. And just one last thing. It reminds me, you mentioned before this interview that you were thinking about going to South Korea to be with your family um, and maybe get tested. So are you still planning on going? Yes, I am still planning on going to South Korea. My parents and I decided that at this point, it's safer to be in South Korea. I was going to say. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say it's probably safer at this point. Exactly, because treatment's so much easier. Testing is so much easier. I mean, my biggest fear is getting the virus while I'm in the airport, even if I take like precautionary measures. So I've already like figured out with my parents that I'm going to a drive through testing spot as soon as I get off the plane. And they will text me my results the next day, like in less than 24 hours. That is just not capable here. Thanks again for all of your reporting. All right. Thank you. That was Catherine Kim, policy and politics reporter for Vox.com. This episode was produced by Alejandra Salazar and edited by Luis Treyes and Sofia Palizacar. Additional reporting by Joanne DeLuna and Miguel Macias. The Latino USA team includes Antonia Cerejido, Janice Amoca, and Alisa Scarce. Fact-checking by Julia Inés Esparza. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our production manager is Natalia Fidelhoz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our intern is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves, stay inside, and we'll see you next time. Funding for Latino USA's coverage of a culture of health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Annie E. Casey Foundation creates a brighter future for the nation's children by strengthening families, building greater economic opportunity, and transforming communities. And New York Women's Foundation. The New York Women's Foundation, funding women leaders that build solutions in their communities and celebrating 30 years of radical generosity.